Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 190 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Urban Sedgick. He received his bachelor's and PhD degrees in electrical engineering from the University of Western Ontario, London, Ontario, Canada in 2002 and 2008, respectively. From 2008 to 2010, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto with a cross-support appointment at Bloorview Kids Rehab, Canada's largest children's rehabilitation teaching hospital. From 2010 until 2011, he was a research fellow at Harvard Medical School with a cross-appointment at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. From 2011 until recently, 2021, he was a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh. And in 2021, he just recently joined the University of Toronto as a faculty member. He is also the research chair in artificial intelligence for health outcomes at North York General Hospital in Toronto. From his earliest exposure to research, he has been eager to contribute to the advancement of scientific knowledge through carefully executed experiments and groundbreaking published work. This has resulted in co-authoring over 150 publications. In February 2016, President Obama named Dr. Sedgwick as a recipient of the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. In 2017, Dr. Sedgwick was awarded the National Science Foundation Career Award. In 2018, he was awarded the Chancellor's Distinguished Research Award at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Sedgwick is the Editor-in-Chief of Biomedical Engineering Online and Associate Edit Editor for IEEE Transactions on Biomedical Engineering and Digital Signal Processing. His passion for discovery and innovation drives his constant endeavors to connect advances in engineering to society's most challenging problems. Hence, his research interests include biomedical signal processing, data analysis, swallowing difficulties, advanced information systems in medicine, rehabilitation engineering, assistive technologies, and anticipatory medical devices. And I was thinking I was just going to try to shorten his bio and just give you guys a few highlights and put the rest in the show notes, but I just felt like you needed to hear all of that. So <laughs> um, I, I love this conversation with him. Such an amazing, interesting, brilliant, kind man. So um, hope you guys really like this too. I just love hearing about all the cool stuff that we're doing in our field and of course for our patients. So hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner and founder of the MedSLP Collective. 
This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Irvin. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. All right, so tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Irvin. I'm one of the few engineers in the wonderful field of dysphagia and speech-language pathology, mostly dysphagia. I got to this field uh, 10 plus years ago when I was a postdoc. Uh, I was hired to actually work on a dysphagia project by my former postdoc advisor, Dr. Tom Chow and Katrina Steele. And I didn't think much about the project. I thought it's just a project that will be done in uh, six to 12 months. And it's been 13 years now and I'm still working on it. So <laughs> good job of me estimating how much it's going to take, how long it's going to take. Amazing. Amazing. So what, what sparked your interest in working with, you know, the field in, in dysphagia? So generally after my PhD, I did my PhD at the University of Western Ontario in electrical engineering, specifically signal processing. And I did a mostly theoretical kind of algorithm development PhD type of deal, right? And by the end, I just wanted to see the utilization of these algorithms in real-world application. I was uh, kind of bored with the idea that I'm going to be just spending my the rest of my life just developing algorithms to be used in some obscured electrical engineering project. So, and I was looking for a challenge, and I was always interested in biomedical field, medical field, right? And I interview, I applied to a bunch of places, and I just few days before the end of my PhD, Dr. Chow contacted me and said, hey, I am still have this opening. Are you interested? So I said, sure, without really knowing much about dysphagia or swallowing or any of it. So it was funny. The first few months, I spent most of my meetings just Googling stuff on my phone. Luckily, iPhone just came out and I was able to Google stuff because <laughs> I did not have a clue about any of this stuff, right? So it was a huge learning experience and it still is. I learn on every single day more about dysphagia, swallowing function and so on, right? I spend less time on Google these days. I, I know yeah. <laughs> I know now a few terms to sound intelligent, but Oh that's good. That's good. Yeah, I, I think what's so fascinating and, and we'll get to this, but I'm pro- I'm just gonna dive into it. I think what's so fascinating is we've learned that you know, cervical auscultation in our field is so unreliable. And if you're using a stethoscope, you're outdated and, you know, it's old news. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, pump the brakes. These people are actually doing cool research that it might actually have some utility in this, in the way that you guys are using it. Yep. So cervical auscultation certainly got a bad rep for several technical reasons. When you think about it, a stethoscope is really designed to listen to heart and lung sounds. And those sounds are fairly higher in frequency than the swallowing sounds and swallowing vibrations, right? I remember when I just started, 
I came across this. So this was 2008, and we were still looking at papers from like late 90s, 1990s. Uh, and I remember I was reading this paper that reported that they recorded these uh, swallowing vibrations and sounds, and they reported frequencies up to 10 kilohertz. So I was like, that doesn't make sense to me as an electrical engineer because that's a you're in the audible range. Like that's I assume that it would be a very loud meal every time we you know eat or drink because you would hear it, right? So I started digging and then like I was talking to Dr. Steele and she couldn't explain it because there was not so much background information on all of this. So we started digging and digging and at one point in time what it really came down is like, all right, I started reading line by line of this paper. And one thing that struck me is like, we used a microphone from Radio Shack. If you guys remember yep, yep, Radio yep. Shack. Back. <laughs> yep. So, and I was like, well, you know, that's a commercially available microphone. It's, and those are cheap microphones. Like, let me try to find the manual for the microphone. And after digging and kind of calling the uh, manufacturer, I was able to get a PDF of the manual. And I realized that the frequency response of the microphone was designed to capture 9 to 11K, right? So 9,000 hertz to 11,000 hertz. So pretty much because it was a karaoke microphone. So that's why they reported those frequencies because the microphone was designed to amplify those frequencies, right? And of course, like we started digging through this, what we found later on that most of these following vibrations and sounds are not in kilohertz range, but they're rather below 100 hertz, right? Because you're capturing really small changes in your body, right? So the flow of fluids or flow of the food bolus, uh, vibrations of the hyoid bone and associated other physiological events. So those are really low frequency. And that took us a long time to understand why uh, we get the results we get. And then, of course, uh, a stethoscope itself is designed to capture frequencies that are above, you know, 150, 200 hertz, because that's the range of heart sounds. So for a long time, people were using stethoscopes and saying, hey, you know, we hear these whooshes or clicks or, you know, if you read, read all these forums and everything and, None of that made sense because they were really capturing something else that is not associated with uh, human swallowing. Yeah, that's totally fascinating. Okay. <laughs> so, t- talk a little bit about what you guys are, what, what you've been working on, if, you, if you'd like to, and kind of where you see this going. So, essentially, we started uh, when I started at the University of Pittsburgh in 2011. We applied for NIH funding and we were able to secure. So, we initially just collected data from 275 patients during typical clinical exams. So, one of the things that I was keen on is let's not develop a specific protocol that we want to use. Let's collect the data, the data we want during a regular exam because that I wanted to capture the real life uh, experience, yeah, right? Yep. And we managed to do that. I think Dr. Coyle, my clinical collaborator at Pitt was pulling his hair every time we <laughs> we had a discussion about this because he kept telling me, no, you cannot do this. I'm like, no, we have to. If we want to be close to a real life situation, we have to kind of. And for a long time, we were just, for a number of years, we were just kind of 
capturing the data, analyzing, reporting preliminary uh, results, how different things, you know, different viscosity of different food changes, these vibrations and sounds that we capture. And in the last uh, four to five years, we moved now to the algorithm development where we are now able to, let's say, associate vibrations capture on the neck, so non-invasively with the higher bone displacement. We can almost give you the same trajectory that you would get from video fluoroscopy images. We are able to reproduce just by using uh, vibrations. Uh, so you don't need an x-ray for that, right? Uh, we are able to infer about UES opening or closing, laryngeal closure, right? These All these physiological events uh, that occur. So right now we have a fairly strong screening tool. And what we are hoping our next kind of thing would be to move from screening into somewhat rehabilitation kind of type of algorithms where we can say, all right, well, elevate your hyoid bone and hold it there and, you know, have a screen, you know, a monitor the patient can just get a visual of how to do it, right? So you don't need to kind of use the x-rays anymore. And then last goal is to move from screening kind of these rehabilitation practices into a diagnostic. So can we use uh, swallowing vibrations and swallowing sounds to actually diagnose some of these issues? So to avoid... Uh, x-rays. Of course, we will never replace x-rays or speech language pathologists. Uh, that's not the goal, but the goal is to actually aid you in your daily jobs. Yeah. Right? Yep. 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 Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That, that's fascinating because I didn't even think of it as a biofeedback tool that, that you're saying using it as too. So yeah, I think that's so interesting. I think, you know, working clinically for so many years, you know, I just, I'm such a huge fan of instrumentation. I've, you know, kind of built my whole career doing, you know, fees and, and instrumentation. So to me, just thinking that this little stethoscope could give us any sort of data to me, I'm just like, Oh, you people are crazy. But the way you're saying it makes so much sense that perhaps, you know, we are able to tell, you know, highway placement or we are able to tell UES opening. So I'm so fascinated to hear how that turns out, you know, what, what kind of the threshold is for, a normal versus an abnormal or what basically is a tipping point to, okay, we do need to get imaging for this person or, you know, is that kind of what you guys are, are thinking of, you know, yeah. essentially like, yeah, that, that, that's a, yeah. essentially where we're kind of uh, moving to these type of answering these type of questions. So, you know, we have a patient who based on this device, we have a high, you know, we are really suspicious that the person needs to go for with a fluoroscopy or fees exam. Right. Uh, rather than it's like, oh, well, the person did a water test and, you know, we think we should send the person, you know, to an x-ray uh, room. Uh, the, the other thing is the utilization of this device is also in like uh, nursing home settings, right, or retirement communities where you typically have an aging population and that aging population is susceptible to swallowing difficulties. And, of course, you don't want to send them constantly for these uh, exams, especially invasive ones, but rather when you really can suspect that this person is probably developing severe case of dysphagia. Yeah, right? yep. yeah, that's what my entire career has been in is in skilled nursing. So I'm just a huge proponent of, you know, really advocating to get these patients the test that they need, but as much information that we can actually gather in the nursing home itself before, you know, needing to get some of these tests that are expensive for the facility to pay for would just be amazing. Right. Yeah, different. The, the other thing that we're developing are a bunch of machine learning algorithms to actually analyze video fluoroscopy data. 
So we can speed up that process as well. So we have a, a couple of algorithms, for example, to identify the hyoid bone in an image and track it on a frame-by-frame basis. We can also identify uh, C2, C4 lengths and kind of then based on that, we can normalize everything to the. So we're also working on that front in order just to speed up the analysis of uh, such data that you may get clinically, right? Yeah, that's so cool. That makes so much sense, but that's so cool. All right. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, kind of what you're doing with artificial intelligence and dysphagia. Yeah, so for sure. So most of our work is AI is a big field that encompasses from machine learning to robotics to perception, natural language processing and all these aspects, right? So what we want to really do is develop a set of algorithms that can be used on many fronts for when it comes to dysphagia care, right? From, let's say, mining of EHR records, electronic health records, so to find for possible early signs of dysphagia, maybe by if a patient goes on a regular to see a family physician on a regular basis, but, you know, a physician is maybe not prone to or an expert in diagnosing dysphagia, early signs of dysphagia, we might hope to develop some of the algorithms based on natural language processing to actually speed up this or to flag the patients as as possible dysphagia uh, patients, right? So some of those things, but then again, uh, what I'm hoping and my team along with Dr. Coyle, uh, what we are really hoping is just actually developing a set of useful algorithms that can be used in a daily clinical processes in order to kind of help clinicians make decisions, right? Uh, we are never aiming to replace SLPs because we can never do that. You guys have such a huge experience and you know how to deal with patients. Algorithms can never do that. But helping you make a decision in a faster and more accurate way that's our goal. Yeah, yeah. And that's our hope for the field in general. Yeah, I, th- I think that's always the hard part. I think sometimes we just don't have concrete data to make these decisions. So it's kind of like we're, for lack of a better term, guessing, you know, and just having these conversations with the patient, like this is what we think is going on. This is what we think will make things better. You know, what approach do you want to take? And and so it's, it's difficult. It's hard to be in that in those shoes that, you know, you're quote unquote the expert and you think you should know, you know, what to tell this patient to do or what's going to be the magic pill or, you know. Well, think about the other way. If you're in a large clinical center like Pittsburgh or some other hospital centers, then there are a bunch of experts already there, right? And if you're a new SOP, you can actually get trained by them and you get the training by the best. But imagine you're in a small rural hospital, right? You're one SLP for the entire county, right? Yep. <laughs> and you're just fresh out of the school. These algorithms will also help you increase your expertise because if the algorithm flags is like, hey, look at the hyoid bone displacement for this person or some other physiological event, you might then pay attention and ask yourself, hmm, I never thought about why is the algorithm flagging me? That is that just a false error or a false positive, or there is something to it. So let me investigate a bit more, right? So there is a huge potential also for SLPs to increase their expertise, like especially in rural areas where it's not easy to be surrounded by more senior or more 
kind of experts in the field. Yep, yep. Yeah, and I think that's much more the norm than I think so many people are out on their own little islands as opposed to having a support system. So that's wonderful. How, I guess, what's your timeline? Do you have any idea of how long you think this stuff will take to develop or how close you are to it actually being clinically implemented? So before I give you an answer, I'll give you a, a small anecdote. When I was hired in February of 2008 by Dr. Chow to work on the initial project that we started, he told me, uh, we have the data, I'll, you know, you'll be done in six months, but I'll pay for a year until you find your faculty position, right? And I was kind of cocky enough to say, I'll be done in three months. So (laughs) (laughs) before I give any answers, you should know that uh, my timeline projections are really bad because it's been 13 years. Uh, But on a more kind of serious side, uh, I think we're going to be able to, within the next five years, have some type of a device that will be uh, deployable in various healthcare settings. Uh, when the, such a device will be manufactured on a mass scale, I don't know, because that's really beyond our capabilities. That's, we need industrial partners for that. But I think within the five-year period, uh, we'll be able to have a basic device that will be able to tell you, all right, if you stick the sensor on a person's neck, this person is a healthy healthy, healthy, or dysphagic patients with healthy swallows, right? Or uh, the person just did a bunch of swallows and we rated them, I think, out of, according to penetration aspiration scale, this many swallows were one and twos, this were more severe. And so will it, it will have some of the screening capabilities. And then I think by in, within the five-year period, we'll be all, also be able to do some of the biofeedback as well. So all of this is in a development and uh, within a year time, we had to start a small clinical trial at the University of Pittsburgh uh, with uh, the prototype of the device. So hoping by in two years, we'll have a better clue how reliable uh, the device is once we are kind of moving from the research around to more real, real life situations, yeah. right? Yeah. So, are, are you guys looking to to build something? I kind of, I feel like the new twist in our field now is actually getting tools in patients' hands. You know, patients now have access to biofeedback tools at home, or you know, eSTEM tools. I didn't know if that was something you're trying to create as well. So that that would be uh, that would be really something that we're hoping is because we all have smartphones, and these are more powerful computers than what I used for my PhD 12 years ago, right? So I'm hoping that we can move into that area. Again, it's a, it's, there are certain technological challenges that are really dealing with the development of connections to the sensor, to smartphones, the sensor that can be attached to smartphones and then accounting for all different smartphones that are available on the market. So, if you ever identify a smart or good partner for this uh, industrial partner that can manufacture some of these connections and so on, I think that would be our ultimate goal is because at the end of the day, it's just an app that we need to download to the phone, right? And the app will contain all these algorithms that will kind of prompt you, all right, do such and such a swallow. And here's our output, right? So that, that would be our ultimate goal. Again, 
certain technological challenges that are a bit tricky to deal with need to be addressed. And had, these challenges have nothing to do with our technology, but rather the smartphone tele- technologies. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. It's also fascinating. Yeah, in general, yeah, just to kind of follow up, in general, there's a a greater push nowadays for uh, virtual care, right, at-home care, especially COVID kind of amplified the need for such a tool to be developed because more and more, like, uh, I think uh, it was an interesting statistic that I read maybe a year ago that they said, Prior to COVID, there were about a few thousand of telehealth visits in the entire United States, and then COVID hit, and then we moved telehealth visits to millions of cases a year, right? Right. So it's a there will be a need, right? And certain COVID has changed some of the mentality associated uh, with healthcare as well, right? That uh, many people now is like, oh, I'm just coughing, like. I don't need to go to see my doctor. I would rather just call him on a Zoom or her, right? And just say, hey, dog, these are my symptoms. Do I need to come and see you rather than, you know, taking a half a day off in order to go see your family physician? Yeah, yeah. I think there's just so much. And it's funny you said that because my mentality has totally shifted about that too. I think like two years ago, I had a conversation with somebody and I was like, there is no role for telehealth with dysphagia. Like we have to get our hands on these patients. And then my, my views totally shifted now. I think there's so much that we can do. I think, yeah, I mean, there's so many cool tools that we now have access to that can give us information to that data that can can help us. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, definitely. And especially even even our own devices, we are hoping that that's going to be one of the tools down the road that people can use, right? Especially SLPs. Hey, you know, we you're a patient with dysphagia, so we want to monitor your swallowing function on a regular basis, but we don't want you to come. So just use this, upload the data to us and we'll take a look. Right. So those are possibilities that we are hoping to kind of attack down the road. Awesome. What what about for research? Um, You mentioned, you know, this, this kind of shift in artificial intelligence may have a way to help you guys collect data better for research purposes. Yep. So definitely AI. I mean, it's an interesting story about AI. Um, When I started my PhD, uh, in 2002, I wanted to do machine learning, just neural networks for my PhD. And my advisor told me he's not going to let me waste my youth on an irrelevant topic, Aww. right? Because AI, ha- AI has this cyclic kind of almost sinusoidal behavior. It's really hot topic. Everybody's into it. And then there is something called AI winter where nobody cares because everybody gets disappointed. And we were just at the beginning of one such cycle uh, back uh, almost 12, 20 years ago, uh, because there was a lot of hype, hype about AI and neural networks in late 1990s. And then people realized, well, it's not an easy field to get into. And like, hey, the biggest reason is we did not have powerful enough computers. What really has changed was the introduction of graphical processing units. So when the gaming industry decided, well, we need better graphics for our games because nobody really wants to play the games, you know, where there's a single line moving across the screen that people want more realistic, they developed GPUs. And GPUs are just powerful CPUs that can process a lot of data quickly. And once most of us realized they developed that, for gaming, we realize we can also run all the other algorithms 
on these GPUs. So that what really has prompted uh, this development in the last five to ten years, the availability of GPUs to actually as a mass commodity unit, right? Because right now, uh, if I wanted to buy a, GP, a workstation with GPU 10 years ago, it would cost me about 15 to 20K. Right now, I can get state-of-the-art for about, you know, 5 to 10K, so, right? And even and even GPU now dropped, like, five years ago, what was 5K, a similar GPU, even better GPU now is $1,000, right? So the prices have dropped significantly, which prompted us uh, to develop these algorithms. But at the end of the day, uh, nothing really changed in our approach. We were just collecting the data. We were just always doing the same thing. The only thing that changed was the our ability to actually run these algorithms on a faster scale. Because we don't need now, like, uh, there was a paper that Dr. Steele and Dr. Chow and I published uh, in 2013, which was with 40 patients and 250 swallows. Uh, it took me almost a year and a half to actually run the algorithm, optimize it to get the good results. These days, my students can run the same algorithm and get the same results probably within the few days. But I'll be like... On a pessimistic side, maybe a month, right? So that has really sped up the development, right? And enabled us to actually do uh, what we're doing. So for for example, this, I mentioned that we have this algorithm uh, that enables us to track hyoid bone displacement during a swallow without x-rays. So basically just based on vibrations. If we tried to do that 10 years ago, we would not be able because we did not have powerful GP computers to do it. Nowadays, we can do it, right? So that was the big shift. And that enables us also to kind of develop novel stuff, right? So to push what we are really hoping, because when we started 10 years ago, Jim and I, when we started this project, our big hope was that we can classify between, you know, penetration, aspiration scale one and two versus maybe three and eight, right? That was our big hope. Now we can do it like that's just like yeah for sure right that's an easy peasy right let's see what else can we do right so and as pushing the boundaries of what is achievable with these sensors is really driven by these computational and i wouldn't say even algorithms but computational resources that enable us to run these algorithms so i'm hoping even down the road that i know moving this device into a diagnostic area is a big challenge, but I'm hoping that with uh, the current computational resources and algorithms, we are able to do that within five to 10 years. Amazing. So. That's so cool. It's so funny to think that just like 10 years ago, the technology was so slow. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but it's really amazing just to see how drastically changed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, my students are running these algorithms, and I'm like... That's so funny. You're like, I was, like, driving the Flintstones car with my feet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that, that's how it felt. Like, me, like, tinkering on these, like, my laptop and trying to kind of get these results, and, like, I'm being all uh, proud of myself. Look what I got, right? And then these guys just do it like this. Oh, like, yeah. Amazing. No, that's so exciting for, for the future. Definitely. So, I guess, what does the future hold? What I'm really hoping is... So... There is me as an engineer in this field, and I'm 
predominantly 99.99% of a lot of people in the field are clinicians, right? And I'm hoping that, uh, A, we can get more uh, engineers and uh, mathematicians and technologists in the field because I'm still amazed that such an important health area is underpopulated by people that you guys need. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Technology developers, right? Yeah. Right? Because in certain areas, like, uh, we are advancing so much with technologies and data science and AI, like uh, cancer oncology and bioinformatics. And then uh, when it comes to SLPs and maybe dysphagia community, we're still kind of doing these, like, uh, small trials of 10 plus people, right, with five swallows each because it's very difficult. So I'm hoping to that there will be le- many more people like me in the field so we can actually foster the uh, R&D in the field, not because SLPs cannot do research, but by introducing new technologies into the field, right? And the other kind of hope for me is that SLPs will give up on the notion that we need to conduct these very well controlled experiments in order to learn about swallowing function. Uh, they're good, definitely. We need such experiments, but we also need to uh, move into experiments that are mimicking real life conditions. Yeah. Right? Yep. Because most of us uh, that have dysphagia, we don't go home and eat, you know, using 10 or 5 milliliter spoon and like, we don't eat like that. It's not practical, right? Most people eat by large, using large spoons, barbecues, right? And we need to move in the assessment and understanding of swelling function during a everyday life, right? And I think there's a, as a technologist, I feel you that there is a disconnect between the real life conditions that we are really trying to understand and our experiments that we use to understand what's happening in the real life. Right. So I'm hoping by attracting more technologists and more engineers in the field that we will be able to develop more algorithms and more approaches to let you guys move the experiments from well-controlled environment into the real life environment. I I love everything you just said, because I think there's so much of what we do, you know, we almost say that it's, it's an art and a science at the same time, because we do have to, you know, take, take in the data, take in the research that we do have, but there's such an art to making it a real life situation. And, And exactly what you said, this isn't how, you know, this isn't how patients eat at home. You know, I have a, I have a son with special needs and the way that he eats would be completely off the charts if we were to put it in a, you know, research setting. It's just not, he couldn't eat the way that we would need it to be. So I, I love that so much because I think there's so much to be said about what clinicians are seeing versus how we can mesh that with what, you know, with the data collection. So yeah, even as I mentioned, when we started our data collections 10 plus years ago, uh, Jim was freaking out every time we went there because he's like, this is not how we do stuff. I'm like, Jim, we have to do it. Uh, trust me, right? He's like, nothing is controlled. This is a mess. We don't have any controls. I'm like, precisely. We need to give up the control because we're going to get the real data. Nobody, like, 
I understand we have to develop certain protocols, right? You know, if you want to measure your body temperature, you're not going to uh, take a thermometer and just kind of swing it and jump it up. You're going to put it under your armpit and sit there for a few minutes. But nobody said, well, position the thermometer under five degrees, you know, looking at northwest side, you know, at 12.35 in the morning, right? Because that would be impractical. That's not how we do it. We have to kind of say, well, all right, just put the thermometer under your armpit and you're going to get the best approximation of what the body temperature is, right? Similarly, we have to do this with understanding swallowing and swallowing function. And we have to move into the real-life conditions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, any technological devices, we're not going to be able that easily to say, all right, well, you, you can just take steak right now and, you know, wash down with a good cold beer and we're going to be able to assess, you know, your swallowing. That would be amazing when we get to that point. Initially, I assume that there will be some, you know, well, you know, take an apple or take a bite of such and such a cookie and eat it and let's, but it's going to be closer to the reality than what we're doing right now with uh, fairly strict measurements. Is it five milliliter or 10 milliliter or it's somewhere between did somebody screwed up the measurement, right? So, because it's not realistic and it does not tell us anything about our life. Yeah. Well, good. I'm so glad that you're fighting for that. <laughs> yeah. I, and, I, and again, <laughs> yeah, a lot of my SLP colleagues think that I'm completely <laughs> crazy about wanting to do that, but hey, there's always a few of us. Right yes, of course. <laughs> there's always the crazy ones. Um, it, well, I'd love to go back, circle back to what you said about kind of recruiting more of your colleagues, because I think that's something that, that so many of us clinicians always talk about, like, Yes, we're the ones in the trenches working with these patients, but, and we have these brilliant ideas, but we know that we aren't the people that are going to create this stuff. You know, we know that we need more partners, like you said, you know, engineers, things like that to help bring this stuff to life. And, and I, I love what you said about, you know, recruiting more of your field. I guess, do you have any ideas of how we can, I guess, increase interest in dysphagia like you said it's such a important thing that is for some reason forgotten about in the in the grand scheme of the medical world so i've started doing some of that so for example a few years ago dr cole dr malandraki from purdue and i published a an article in an engineering journal called here's a new computational field called computational deglutition amazing i've not seen that i'll have to pull that yeah i'll have to pull that up i haven't seen that Pay attention to us because you'll yeah. see more of us, right? Yeah. The other thing that Dr. Cole and I are doing right now is we're developing a massive open online course or MOOC, right? And the MOOC is dealing with precisely that, computational deglutition. So half of the lectures will be on dysphagia, swallowing, swallowing function. So general introduction to the field for SLPs and non-specialists, right? So not every SLP is familiar with swallowing, right? In details. And the other half is going to be just, hey, look at these algorithms and all of this. This is how you can use it to understand some of it. So we started developing these educational resources that can be widely shared. Uh, and our hope is to, we are also working with Institute for Learning at the University of Pittsburgh to take some of these modules and translated into high school modules as well. So we're kind of pushing this into kind of wide area of sciences. So people are aware that you can be an engineer and work on this because I ran through four years of my electrical engineering degree and 
I never thought I'm going to be working on dysphagia. I thought, you know, I'll be designing power systems or whatever, microcontrollers or something, right? I never thought that it can, I can take my knowledge and actually apply it to such. So it's just me trying, us trying to kind of share this information with general community, engineering community, and then involving people into the uh, projects and field and really just kind of fetching them and saying, hey, come over here. I have a cool project for you, right? So I'm hoping that that we we have some planted some seeds of these ideas across the field. So and now in years to come, more and more engineers, I will train more and more engineers to actually be involved in the field and hoping now with the new position at the University of Toronto and North York General, hoping to kind of get more people involved in all of this. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I have a cousin that just finished his PhD in biomedical engineering, and he just took a postdoc working on, you know, like spinal cord, basically creating these cool devices to help with that. And I was like, have you ever thought about doing anything with swallowing? And he's like, no, what does that have to do with anything? I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) No, but that that, that was uh, one of the things uh, when I was... Uh, interviewing for faculty positions in early 2010s, I would go and give a talk and uh, typically I interviewed in electrical engineering departments. Mm-hmm. They all look at me it's like, oh my God, I never thought that, you know, swallowing yeah. can be such a big problem, right? right. And right. they would ask me, it's like, so who's the leader in the field? I'm like, well, pretty much you're looking at me. <laughs> I didn't want to tell them that the entire field is N equal to one. Yes. <laughs> me. <laughs> I mean, there are other people, but, you know, more or less it was me at the time, right? So, uh, no, we definitely need more engineers. We need more mathematicians, uh, computer scientists uh, to develop approaches and technologies to actually help you or enable you to do your jobs more efficiently. And by doing so, we will be able to learn more about swallowing and swallowing function and everything else. Yep, yep. That's the truth. Awesome. Do you have any, is there any specific like research or a research article or anything that has kind of changed the way you thought about things? Well, just being involved in the field yeah. that changed. It was interesting because as a signal processing person, data scientist, let's call it as a general term, you know, we were, I was always like, oh my God, like we can develop these new algorithms and then you go and develop stuff and you're like, Hey, look at this. I increased the accuracy. And it was interesting to notice once you got, once I got into a hospital and started working with real life patients. So not just me saying this is a patient model, right? This is a real human. It was interesting for me to actually notice how many of these algorithms failed because once you start working with, in a real life condition, many of your assumptions fail. Interesting. And everything that you've learned or thought you knew will quickly disappear because you realize those real life conditions don't portray this nice picture about your underlying assumptions you made in your theoretical advances. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that that was a big revelation for me that, You can develop anything you want, theoretically, but to actually test it on patients, that's a different story. And 
that was a big revelation for me, even as an engineer, like I thought many of these things are easily solved. Like there's nothing. It's like, I'll just run the algorithms and get the results. What's the big problem? Right. And then you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Love to hear about things like that. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Thank you so much for coming on. This is, this is so fun to hear about. Uh, generally, I appreciate what you're doing. These podcasts are great way to disseminate knowledge, to disseminate ideas. And please get more people involved, especially when you find people like me who are non-traditional people in the field, interview yeah, yeah. them because... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd love to. Yeah. Initially, I was struggling to get into the field because everybody was looking at me and like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> right? yeah, 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 yeah. What do we do with you? Yeah. yeah. But now that I'm like, I fully appreciate the field and uh, people are, again, Dr. Kurt played a major role in this yeah. because he yeah. vouched for me that I'm not completely crazy. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Irvin. I super appreciate this. Yeah. Thank you, Therese. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.